0: Com.
1: History That Doesn't Suck is a bi weekly podcast delivering a legit, seriously researched, hard hitting survey of American history through entertained stories. If you'd like to support HTDS or enjoy bonus content, please consider giving at patreon.com forward slash history that doesn't suck. Welcome to History That Doesn't Suck. I'm your professor, Greg Jackson. And I'd like to tell you a story. The morning sun is just cresting over New York City as four oarsmen row out on the Hudson River. They have three passengers. One is the dark-featured Hamilton family physician and friend, Dr. David Hosack. Next is another one of Alexander Hamilton's good friends, the well-respected jurist, Judge Nathaniel Pendleton. And finally, yeah... Alexander. And it's on this beautiful, oddly crisp summer morning, Wednesday, July 11th, 1804, that the founding father of finance will duel against the current vice president, Aaron Burr. Alex watches his adopted hometown slowly shrink into the distance. I wish we knew what's going through his head right now. All I can tell you for sure is that he does, at some point while being rowed up and across the Hudson, Wax eloquent about the beauty around him and New York's potential. Oh, how it's grown since he first arrived some 30 years ago. All the new buildings and houses. The population's more than doubled. The Big Apple now teems with 80,000 residents. But I wonder, does this Caribbean-born New Yorker reflect on his time here too? From palling around with Hercules Mulligan, to studying at King's College, fighting the British, practicing law, serving as George Washington's treasury secretary, I have to imagine some or all of these New York milestones are passing through his mind. After all, it will take almost two hours to row the nearly three miles from New York's Greenwich Village to Weehawken, New Jersey's shore. Does he think about his family? This father of eight? Well, it'll always be eight. But seven living. Come December, it'll be three years since a duel took his oldest son, Philip's life. At the same place. With the same guns. Alex, ever the attentive father, hasn't been the same since. Yeah, I'm sure he's thinking about his kids. And Eliza. He has to be thinking about his wife, Eliza. I mean, this man of words woke up at 3 a.m. today to write her a hymn but the small vessel transporting this family man is drawing close to New Jersey's shoreline. Alex's time for reflection is coming to an end. It's now just shy of 7 a.m. The dawn's light washes fully over the Hudson. The boat's seven occupants disembark on this thin beach just in front of Weehawken's Cliffs. The oarsman and Dr. Hozek stay here. This way, they won't witness the duel, and they can claim ignorance of what's about to go down should the law get involved. And so, only Alex and his jurist friend Nathaniel, who's serving as his second, continue on. The two men ascend a narrow trail hidden by some vegetation. It leads to a ledge roughly 20 feet above the Hudson that's concealed by boulders and trees. This secluded, wooded area is big and private enough for disagreeing gentlemen to settle their differences through an affair of honor. That is, a duel. And it's because of these features, well and New Jersey's lackluster prosecution of dueling, that this ledge on the cliffs of Weehawken is a popular dueling ground. In this place of wrath and tears, where so many have previously risked or lost their lives, Alex now lays eyes on the man who first accused him of insult 23 days ago. The lame duck vice president recently defeated New York gubernatorial candidate, Colonel Aaron Burr. His age is showing. Aaron's hair is receded and grayed around the ears since they first crossed paths decades ago. But then again, Alexander's face isn't hiding the toll taken by the passage of time or life's disappointments much better. After all, General Hamilton is as down and out politically as the vice president, with whom he now exchanges ceremonial salutations. Aaron's second, William Van Ness, now does his duty alongside Nathaniel by counting out ten paces. This done, they draw lots, the equivalent of you flipping a coin, to see which of them will choose positions. Nathaniel wins, but curiously, he, possibly with input from his principal, Alexander, chooses the dueling ground's northern side. This leaves Alex staring into the sunlight with the Hudson River and New York City in the background, while Aaron enjoys the southern side's excellent shaded view. (sighs) Huh. This done, the seconds draw to see who will officiate the duel. Once again, it goes in Nathaniel's favor. Okay, it's time to get down to business. The seconds each take one of the two beautiful, ornate, long, brass, smooth-barreled flintlock pistols from a leather case brought by Nathaniel and Alex. After loading each with a shot in full sight of the other, they cock the pistols. Then hand them to their respective principals. Alex and Aaron take their marked positions. Nathaniel goes over the rules, which include the following procedure. He'll ask if they're ready. If they say yes, he will say present. Then they may fire. Ready? Nathaniel Pendleton calls out, his voice ringing through the woods. Stop. In certain states of the light, one requires glasses, answers Alexander Hamilton. Ah, right. He has the northern position facing the sunlight. The down-on-his-luck founding father now holds up his flintlock pistol, sighting it several times before reaching into a pocket with his left hand, taking out his glasses and putting them on. This will do. Now you may proceed, he hollers back to Nathaniel. Ready? Nathaniel repeats. Both answer in the affirmative. Present... This is the story of the most famous affair of honor in American history, if not the world. The duel between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Now, every American that doesn't live under a rock knows the immediate outcome. And I'm sure the non-American listeners are putting two and two together real quick. But, my informed fellow Americans, do you know the crucial details? Why are these guys dueling? Will Alexander purposely miss? You know throw away his shot? Who's going to fire first? And how will this change the lives of those involved and, to a degree, America? Let's uncover all of this, or at least to the extent anyone can. And to do that, we need to back up to a dinner Alex attended in March of this year, 1804. From there, I'll walk you through the hearsay, letters, disagreements, and preparations that bring us to the shots we just heard. And of course, then we have the aftermath. But hey, Before I continue, a warning. This episode might be even harder than George Washington's death back in episode 17. Grab tissue now. Got it? Okay then. Let's head back to March. Rewind. Alex sits, sipping his wine in the Albany, New York dining room of Judge John Taylor. No, not that Judge John Taylor. To Kill a Mockingbird is a work of fiction and a totally different story. Anyhow, the other diners, several prominent Federalists and Judge John's son-in-law, Dr. Charles Cooper, chat idly with one another. We have few details about this informal dinner party, but these old friends probably sit around eating, drinking more than their fair share of wine and reminiscing about the war days. Oh yeah, and discussing politics. Like the current New York gubernatorial election. And as Federalists, they have no problem ripping into both the Democratic-Republican candidate, New York Chief Justice Morgan Lewis, or the Independent candidate, Vice President Aaron Burr. Now, I'm guessing you might be wondering why the current number two guy in the nation, VP Aaron Burr, would seek a demotion to Governor. See, Aaron and President Thomas Jefferson don't get along. And how could they? I mean, you heard about the cutthroat election that put the pair in the White House back in episode 18. If you were Tom, would you trust him? Exactly. So knowing that Tom's looking for a new partner for his second election, Aaron decides to seek his potential fortunes back home in the Empire State. And frankly, running a politically powerful state like New York is more like a lateral step, maybe even a step up, for the power-hungry VP. So now that you know why Aaron is even in this race, let's get back to our tipsy friends in Albany. They discuss the dismal state of affairs for the Federalists. I mean, you may have noticed the party can't even muster a candidate for the gubernatorial seat. It's that bad. This leaves most of our pro-strong central government dinner guests in a quandary. Vote for Republican Justice Morgan Lewis or vote independent for Aaron Burr. Alex and his host, Judge John, have firmly decided against Vice President Burr and spiritedly discuss why they can't let the self-interested Aaron take the governor's seat. And it's no surprise Alex feels this way. Back in the presidential election of 1800, he called the guy unprincipled in no uncertain terms. To quote, Burr's public principles have no other spring or aim than his own aggrandizement, if he can, he will certainly disturb our institutions to secure to himself permanent power and with it wealth. He is truly the Cataline of America. Close quote. Damn. Alex pulled no punches there. And four years later, his sentiments haven't changed. In fact, our sharp-tongued friend has a new, more concrete reason to doubt the sitting vice president. Secession. Yeah, I know the Civil War is half a century away, but here's the thing. The waning Federalists see a grim future in which the recent Louisiana Purchase leads to the expansion of slavery and a loss of colonial power for the Northeast. And amidst all of this, Alex fears that the self-serving Aaron will gain power as a leader in this potential secession movement. After all, It needs the backing of big states like New York and New Jersey to even have a prayer of working, and he wants a political position, like the governor of New York, that offers him more clout. It's a match made in, well, probably not heaven, and Alex, who only wrote 51 essays in defense of the Constitution during the ratification process— will do his part to keep Aaron Burr from having the power needed to tromp on the hard work of the Constitutional Convention and his fellow Federalists. Now, we don't know for sure what Alex says to the judge about this dangerous movement and the part Aaron might play in it at the dinner party. But the judge's son-in-law, Dr. Charles Cooper, sure does. The doctor, a Federalist himself, thoroughly enjoys this evening of Burr bashing, and after the party... He writes to his pal, Andrew Brown, to pass on all the juicy details of the evening's conversation. Well, the letter, quote unquote, accidentally gets published in the Albany Register in early April, and most of Albany, including Alex's father-in-law, Philip Schuyler, read that Alex has, quote, come out decidedly against Burr. Indeed, when Hamilton was here, he spoke of him as a dangerous man who ought not to be trusted. Close quote. Well, Philip can't let this slide. Even though he wasn't at the dinner, he refutes Dr. Charles' letter in print so that all the neighbors can read it, saying that Alex, to quote him, declared to me that he would not interfere, close quote, in the election. But Philip never actually refutes that Alex called Aaron dangerous. And when Dr. Charles sees this glaring omission, he responds with a damning nail in Aaron's coffin or rather, Alex's, by writing, quote, Really, sir, I could detail to you a still more despicable opinion which General Hamilton has expressed of Mr. Burr. Close quote. Whoa, what could Charles possibly mean by still more despicable? And what will Mr. Burr think of this when he reads it? Well, if he reads it. See, all of these letters get published right before the vote. But Aaron's in the middle of a pretty nasty statewide campaign, and there are a lot of libelous articles published about him these days. In fact, the editor of The American Citizen, James Cheatham, has it out for Aaron and prints several pamphlets, or broadsides as they're called, full of vicious lies about the candidate's nonetheless robust sex life. Aaron shrugs off most of the Republican criticisms, writing to his daughter about the, quote, new and amusing libels, close quote that appear in the paper each day. But these pamphlets cross the line. Aaron tells his friends that he will, quote, call out the first man of any respectability concerned in the infamous publications. Close quote. Despite the political and personal attacks, though, Aaron runs a clean, competitive race and has high hopes for a win. But he loses. Badly. He does pretty well with the federalists and moderates in the city, but he only gets about 40% of the vote in the rest of the state. He plays off the losses with his characteristically casual attitude, telling his daughter Theodosia that, quote, the election is lost by a great majority, tant mieux, Close quote. By the way, that last bit in French means so much the better. So it's not until June that he happens to read Dr. Charles Cooper's published letters recounting what Alex said at that dinner party last March. But even with the time elapsed, Aaron flies into a rage over that ambiguous phrase, still more despicable. So much for his unflappable public persona. The runner-up now has concrete evidence that Alex was gossiping about him during the campaign. Maybe Alex was the one taking cheap shots at him through those anonymous pamphlets too. In reality, Alex has nothing to do with that vitriolic mess, but Aaron adds two and two and gets five. Still seething, Aaron asks his good friend William Van Ness. Yes, you heard that name at the opening of the episode, and he's going to play a big role in the events that follow. He asks William to come over on Monday, June 18th. The indignant Aaron writes a note to Alex asking for an explanation of the despicable comment. Specifically, he wants a, quote, prompt and unqualified acknowledgement or denial of the use of any expressions which could warrant the assertions of Dr. Cooper. Close quote. So basically, he wants Alex to confirm or deny the claim of Dr. Charles Cooper and offer an apology. Seems reasonable, right? Well, it might be too vague to consider it reasonable. Anyway, William delivers the letter to Alex at his office around 11 o'clock that morning. But Alex sees exactly what this note really is. The beginning of an affair of honor. Here's Alex's chance to offer some bland, half-hearted apology. Something like, I didn't mean anything by it. Sorry if he got offended. That would stick it to Aaron, but also be an honorable response. But that's not Alex. Instead, he goes into full-on lawyer mode and tells William that, quote, If Mr. Burr would refer to any particular expressions, he would recognize or disavow them. Close quote. And yeah, according to the rules of these affairs of honor, the Coduello, Aaron should have pinpointed exactly the word or phrase for which he'd like an apology. And he should have done it back in April when the letters appeared in the papers. But Aaron isn't following the rules to the letter of the law. I guess like Captain Barbosa, he's treating the code more like guidelines than actual rules. So Alex makes Aaron wait. He has to read Charles' letters before he can respond. By the way, can we pause to point out how crazy it is that neither Aaron nor Alex, the main characters of this exchange, see these published notes until June? No one said anything, or you know, brought them a paper? Really? Really? Anyway, as hard as it is to believe, Alex has to read the old papers. He promises William a written response for Aaron by Wednesday, saying, quote, that it was a subject that requires some deliberation and that he wished to proceed with justifiable caution and circumspection. Close quote. Well, this delay does not smooth things over. Aaron expects and, according to the code, should get an immediate response. That's why he sent William to Alex's office, to get a response, not to get tabled like some Senate infrastructure bill. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own?
0: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: When Alex finally writes back on Wednesday night, he irks Aaron even more. He basically refuses to apologize for the things that Dr. Charles Cooper implied. To quote him, I deem it inadmissible, on principle, to consent to be interrogated as to the justness of the inferences which may be drawn by others from whatever I may have said of a political opponent. Close quote. Don't get me wrong. Alex would be ready to own up to a specific charge or something he actually said at the dinner, but in demanding an apology for the insinuations of someone else, he thinks Aaron is asking too much. But Aaron just digs his heels in after reading Alex's note. On Friday, William brings Aaron's second note to Alex's office. This one borders on angry. He demands that Alex answer for Dr. Charles Cooper's letters. Quote, the question is whether you have authorized this application either directly or by uttering expressions or opinions derogatory to my honor. Your letter has furnished me with new reasons for requiring a definite reply. Close quote. Definite reply? Yeah, no. Instead, Alex basically gives William a college lecture on logic and explains that he cannot give a specific answer to a broad statement. Poor William. He has to play go-between for these two unyielding men. So in an effort to bring an end to all of this back and forth, he practically tells Alex what to write in response to Aaron. I can almost hear his exasperated tone as, with forced patience, he instructs Alex to just write that, quote, he could recollect the use of no terms that would justify the construction made by Dr. Cooper, close quote. Brilliant, William. This way, Alex. Alex doesn't have to claim responsibility for Charles' letters, and he puts the brakes on this runaway train heading straight for a and cliff. But Alex won't follow William's advice. Aaron's pal needs help reining in these obstinate New York lawyers, and he knows just who to get. Judge Nathaniel Pendleton. On Friday, William takes Nathaniel out for a long lunch. Okay, I don't actually know where they met, but I hope food's involved, even if Chopped doesn't exist yet, and brings him up to speed on this affair of honor. After hearing the whole story, Nathaniel is sure he can change Alex's mind and get him to offer Aaron some kind of apologetic response. He speeds off to Alex's office that afternoon, where he finds the brilliant lawyer more angry than anticipated. There's no way Nathaniel's changing Alex's mind. Instead of talking him down, Nathaniel ends up watching as Alex dashes off a short, venomous note to Aaron. Quote, With your last letter, received this day, containing expressions indecorous and improper, you have increased the difficulties to explanation, intrinsically incident to the nature of your application. If by a definite reply you mean the direct avowal or disavowal required in your first letter, I have no other answer to give than that which has already been given. Close quote. Nathaniel has to go back to William with this defiant note instead of the repentant one that he had promised. Both of these guys are realizing there might not be any breaks on this train at all. William delivers Alex's incendiary note to Aaron immediately after receiving it. And Aaron replies right away. But the Hamilton family spends the weekend at their country estate, a.k.a. The Grange, which is located in the remote little farming village of Harlem, found on the northern side of Manhattan Island. This prevents Alex from reading the latest note until Tuesday, June 26th. And it's not good. Aaron writes... My request to you was in the first instance proposed in a form the most simple in order that you might give to the affair that course to which you might be induced by your temper and your knowledge of facts. I relied with unsuspecting faith that from the frankness of a soldier and the candor of a gentleman, I might expect an ingenuous declaration." With these impressions, I was greatly disappointed in receiving from you a letter which I could only consider as evasive, and which, in manner, is not altogether decorous. Thus, sir, you have invited the course I am about to pursue, and now, by your silence, impose it upon me. Oh, that's it. This duel is on. William and Nathaniel have tried everything they can think of to stop this, but since Alex sees a, quote, predetermined hostility... Close quote in Aaron, and the scorned man finds Alex intransigent, the duel is now set in stone. On Wednesday, June 27th, William takes a formal duel request to Nathaniel, and the seconds set a date of July 11th for the actual shootout. Now, I'll add that most duels happen much faster in order to keep them quiet from interfering authorities, but the responsible Alex has court dates on the calendar and an estate to set in order, so he puts it off. This delay allows for what must have been a pretty awkward 4th of July party. See, Alex and Aaron are both members of the Society of Cincinnati, an old boys club for Revolutionary War officers and their eldest sons. And of course the club is hosting an Independence Day party. Alex has to go to this thing. He's the president after all. And Aaron joined the group a few years ago, probably to up his political game, so he needs to show his face in order to maintain contacts. They spend the evening keeping up appearances because hardly anyone knows about their planned duel. Alex sings a solo, an old soldiering song, while Burr stares morosely into his pint. But by the end of the night, no one's caught on to their secret interview. Alex and Aaron actually keep their duel secret from almost everyone, including their families. But their plan is constantly on Alex's mind over the next week. The principled man is conflicted to his core, On the one hand, his sense of honor compels him to participate in this duel to preserve his political career. On the other, his moral and religious beliefs prevent him from taking another man's life. Alex has definitely become more religious as he's aged. While not a regular churchgoer, he is a spiritual man and shares his faith with his children. His son says that on Sunday, July 8th, only three days before his interview with Aaron, Alex, quote, read the morning service of the Episcopal Church close quote, with the entire family. Alex finally comes to a difficult conclusion. Based on his Christian faith, Alex plans to throw away his shot, aiming away from Aaron during the duel. He writes, I have resolved if our interview is conducted in the usual manner, and it pleases God to give me the opportunity to reserve and throw away my first fire, and I have thoughts even of reserving my second fire. His good friend Rufus King tries desperately to talk him out of this idea. Rufus argues that Aaron definitely means to kill Alex and tells him that, quote, he owed it to his family and the rights of self-defense to fire at his antagonist, close quote. Rufus is right. Alex has the right to self-defense in the code Duello. Further, the honor-conscious dueler might consider that the code specifically states that, quote, no dumb shooting or firing in the air is admissible in any case, Close quote. any case. Not even Alex's newly strengthened Christian faith. The code also states that, quote, the challenged ought, if he gave offense, to have made an apology before he came on the ground, Close quote. Ah, but Alex, the challenged in this case, he can't apologize. He has said over and over again that Aaron's vague, ill-defined request prohibits him from making amends. So throwing the code and Rufus' advice out the window, Alex holds firm to his decision to aim away from his opponent, even if that leaves him open to Aaron's shot. And really, Alex doesn't believe that Aaron will shoot to kill. I mean, if Aaron fatally shoots his opponent, it will completely flush his already-in-the-toilet political career. Remember, Duels are not about killing your opponent. They are about resolving disputes and defending honor, which is why none of Alex's six previous affairs of honor as a principal, including one with future U.S. President James Monroe, ever resulted in drawing pistols. And even when shots are fired, duelists often aim for an appendage because even if the law doesn't prosecute, larger society might take the victor for a cold-blooded murderer. So for all of these reasons... Alex has sound logic in thinking he can afford to throw away his shot, as Aaron must be a complete fool, ready to cut his nose to spite his face if he shoots to kill. But even if the vice president does, Alex explains that his religious conviction surpasses any argument in favor of shooting at his antagonist, saying it, quote, is the effect of a religious scruple and does not admit of reasoning. It is useless to say more on the subject. Close quote. Of course, Alex has plenty of other subjects on his mind in the days preceding the duel. So does Aaron, for that matter. Over the next several days, both men prepare their estates for the worst. Okay, let's be honest, this takes Alex a lot longer than it takes Aaron. From June 27th to July 10th, Alex spends hour after hour at his desk, writing letters to friends and family, updating his will, and outlining debts. You know, just in case. His careful planning shows what a conscientious father and husband he really is. Some have speculated that Alex's duel is actually a death wish, more of a suicide than a murder. It is true that these last few years of Alex's life have been full of disappointment, defeat, and depression, but the steps Alex takes to care for his clients, friends, and family show that this man of honor means to take good care of them if he is absent, not because he hopes to be absent. In addition to taking care of business details, the wordsmith also writes a four-point essay Yeah, I know, that's totally Alex, isn't it? outlining his decision to duel with Aaron. This apologia clearly states why he is playing this deadly game. Quote, I thought it a peculiar necessity not to decline the call. The ability to be in future useful in public affairs would probably be inseparable from a conformity with public prejudice in this particular. Close quote. In other words, Alex hopes to save any future political career by conforming to the public's belief in affairs of honor and dueling. He also holds out a significant amount of hope for his antagonist. To quote him again, I have not censured him on like grounds. I certainly have had strong reasons for what I may have said. It is also my ardent wish that I may have been more mistaken than I think I have been, and that he, by his future conduct, may show himself worthy of all confidence and esteem and prove an ornament and blessing to his country. Close quote. Wow. Well, that's probably a little too optimistic for the self-serving Aaron Burr, but kudos to you, Alex. The last and really most important things that Alex writes are for his cherished wife, Eliza. She has weathered the birth of eight children, the death of one, the mental breakdown of another, and survived that awful Reynolds affair with dignity and grace. As he contemplates the fact that she may lose him, Alex tucks away a note in his will. It's only to be given to her if he dies. He writes another note for Eliza late in the evening on July 10th. This letter speaks to Alex's memories of his challenging childhood and the dear cousin who paid for part of his education. He has already invited this cousin, Ann Mitchell, to come to the U.S. He intends to care for her financially as she ages. But if he dies tomorrow, he begs Eliza to, quote, be of service to Mrs. Mitchell and treat her with the tenderness of a sister, close quote. Now, sources conflict, but after writing this emotional note, It's said that Alex falls asleep either with an orphan child his family has recently taken in or his own 11-year-old son, John, held tenderly in his arms as he sleeps for the last time before the duel. He wakes up one of his sons, perhaps John, around 3 a.m. and asks him to light a candle while telling him that he has to go back to the Grange where Eliza and some of the children are staying because the 4-year-old is sick. Just a little white lie to keep the kids from worrying when they wake up at dawn. He actually writes a poignant hymn to his darling, darling wife. Eliza truly is the last thing on his mind. Alex now heads to the wealthy banker William Bayard's dock in Greenwich Village. He's there by 5 a.m. He and his six companions, Dr. Hozak, Judge Nathaniel Pendleton, and four unidentified oarsmen, now push off onto the Hudson. At roughly the same time, four other oarsmen are launching Aaron Burr and his second, William Van Ness, from a different Manhattan dock. And as you know from the start of this episode, they're crossing to the New Jersey side of the river just under three miles further north. Aaron arrives around 6.30, Alex closer to 7. And you know what happens in the next few minutes. Aaron and William ascend the hidden, narrow trail on the small beach at the bottom of Weehawken's tall, steep cliffs. Alex and Nathaniel follow soon thereafter. The seconds walk out the ten paces. They draw for the principal's positions and for officiant, both falling in favor of Team Ham. The second load and cock the pistols. They hand them to their respective principals. Nathaniel reviews the rules and asks the dueling duo if they're ready. Alex, likely squinting into the sun with his northern position, stops the proceedings, reaches for his glasses, and sights his pistol. Ready? Nathaniel calls again. They respond affirmatively, leading our officiating second to call out, Present! And! Tensed, Alex pops up on his toes. His whole body contorts to the left, then drops precipitously to the earth. I am a dead man, the general declares. Aaron advances towards his bleeding, wounded opponent. A look of regret has already sunk into his hardened countenance. His friend and second William intercedes and urges him away from the scene before the doctor and the oarsmen arrive. And William's right. Remember, if they see the victorious VP, they will be obliged to testify if the law gets involved. William opens an umbrella to shield his principal's morose face from the approaching men. Arriving at the boat, Aaron is still distraught. I must go and speak to him, he exclaims to William. But obviously he can't. Within minutes of his victory, Aaron already seems to grasp he's done something terribly wrong. As the umbrella-cloaked Aaron Burr exits the scene, Dr. Hosack rushes in. The sight breaks his heart. He finds an ashen Alex in Nathaniel's arms and resting against a small red-brown boulder. His countenance of death I shall never forget. Hosack will later write, This is a mortal wound, Doctor. The bleeding general man just eke out, then goes limp. The young doctor springs into action. He strips away Alex's bloody clothes in search of the gunshot wound, and damn it. Aaron hit Alex in his right rib cage. Hosack is all too certain that, quote, "the ball must have been through some vital part." Close quote: "He can't get a pulse, feel a breath or feel a beating heart." Hosack turns to Nathaniel and tells him the only chance they have for reviving their wounded, if not already dead, friend is to get him on the water. And so, they carry him back down the narrow trail to the beach below Weehawken's Cliffs, where the oarsmen help lay the nearly dead founding father in the bottom of the boat. Hosack refuses to give up. As soon as they shove off the Hudson, he starts rubbing spirits of Hartshorn, think smelling salts, All over Alex's face, lips, temples, neck, chest, wrists, palms, hell, he even, quote, endeavors to pour some into his mouth, close quote. And about 50 yards out on the water, his efforts pay off. For the first time since leaving the dueling ground, Alex takes a discernible, weak, shaky breath. My vision is indistinct, Alex says. Nearly blind, but he's talking, thank God. His pulse increases too. Hosack now tries applying pressure near the wound, but it's far too painful for Alex to take. Still, there's more good news. His sight's returning, which leads to a curious moment. Alex now notices the pistol he used at the duel laying outside the leather case. As one of the oarsmen moves to put it away, Alex warns him, quote, Take care of that pistol. It is undischarged and still cocked. It may go off and do harm. Pendleton knows he continues, now turning his head toward his loyal second, that I did not intend to fire at him. Yes, I have already made Dr. Hozak acquainted with your determination as to that. Judge Nathaniel Pendleton tells Alex, who, reassured, now rests his eyes. He says little else as they row south and across the Hudson, except to ask Dr. Hosack about his pulse, and to inform the good doctor that he can no longer feel his legs. Really, they can't get back to Manhattan soon enough. For the love of God, gents, row. Row. Since our boat-turned-ambulance has a good hour of rowing ahead of it, let me point something out in the interim. Alex thinks he never fired. Now, it could be his head isn't clear, or maybe his memory is messing with him. But given his determination not to shoot Aaron, it's possible Alex never intentionally fired. That the muscles in his hand and finger involuntarily constricted as Aaron's shot pierced his side and shredded internal organs. Intentional or not, Alex clearly doesn't recall that his pistol discharged. As the boat carrying the barely living Alexander closes in on William Bayard's dock, Alex makes a request let Mrs. Hamilton be immediately sent for. Let the event be gradually broken to her. But give her hopes. Alex knows how hard they both took Philip's dual-induced death. He knows his impending passing from the same activity, at the same spot, with the same guns, tended by the same doctor, no less, as their boy, will be too much for her to bear. Better to break the news in pieces. Given the secretive nature of illegal duels, Mr. Bayard only found out Alex's crew used his dock earlier this morning after they launched, when his own servants informed him. He now stands on the dock, anxiously waiting for his friend. Once the boats get close enough for him to see that Alex isn't seated, but laying down, he knows the result. The banker clasps his hands together in grief and sobs. Prepare a cot! Dr. Hozak calls out from the boat. Mr. Bayard's servants jump to it, transporting the pale yet composed Alexander on a cot from the docked boat up to the second-floor bedroom of the Bayard mansion. As this happens, Dr. Hozak has little hope, but all the same, he sends for his colleague, Dr. Post, to come help. Perhaps due to the movement, Alex's pain has become far more acute by the time he reaches his new bedroom. Hosack incessantly pushes water and weak wine on him as others assist by removing the Federalist founding father's clothes in the darkened room. By the end of the day, the young doctor will administer a number of painkillers to Alex, including an ounce of laudanum. News of the duel spreads like a wildfire across Manhattan. Alexander Hamilton. THE Alexander Hamilton. The Revolutionary War hero, Federalist Papers author, constitutional signee, Treasury Secretary general, and eminent lawyer, that Alexander Hamilton? Shot? Shot by Vice President Aaron Burr? The whole city simply comes to a stop as countless admirers throng to the Bayard Mansion, essentially standing vigil outside while close friends and family head inside. When the French consul hears what's happened, he sends for all the French surgeons on French ships docked in New York. Working on early 18th century ships, these are men well acquainted with gunshot wounds. Sadly, they soon come to the same conclusion as Dr. Hosack and his colleague, Dr. Post. Alex is living on borrowed time. It's not a question of if, only when. By this point, Alexander's wife Eliza has arrived. She departed the moment word reached her, but since she's coming from that remote country estate of theirs up in Harlem, it takes time. Upon seeing her dear husband, though, this long-suffering woman knows her husband's condition is far worse than what was. Per Alex's instructions, I remind you, described to her. Amid her deep, pained sobs, uncontrollable tears pour from her dark eyes. Despite his physical pain and incapacitation, Alex comforts her with the same bravery, composition, and clear mind that enabled him to claw his way from a godforsaken Caribbean island to the highest echelons of American society. As Dr. Hozak relates, quote, as a proof of his extraordinary composure of mind, let me add that he, Alex, alone could calm the frantic grief of their mother. Remember, my Eliza, you are a Christian were the expressions with which he frequently, with a firm voice, but in pathetic and impressive manner, addressed her. His words and the tone in which they were uttered will never be effaced from my memory. Close quote Now, as the city mourns outside the Bayard mansion, a religious drama unfolds within. As I mentioned earlier, Alex has become increasingly religious in recent years, which is why the last words penned by this prolific writer were a religious hymn for Eliza, and that his words of comfort to her in this moment are to remember that, quote, you are a Christian. Close quote. Nonetheless, when Alex requests that the Episcopal Bishop of New York, Reverend Benjamin Moore, administer last rites to him, the bishop refuses. See, Alex has done free legal work for the Trinity Episcopal Church, his family's rented pew 92, and five of his eight children have been baptized there specifically. But alas, Alex's fervent belief and support is not shored up by regular church attendance. Further, his injury and likely death are the result of a duel, so Bishop Moore isn't sure if he's comfortable administering to an infrequent church-going duelist like Alexander. Still bleeding, still dying, Alex asks a close friend of another denomination, the Presbyterian Reverend John M. Mason, to administer last rites. Sadly, though, the Reverend has to inform Alex that this isn't a thing for Presbyterians. Quote, It is a principle in our churches never to administer the Lord's Supper privately to any person under any circumstances. Close quote. The painful theology lesson is nonetheless accompanied by the Presbyterian man of God's assurances that Christ's blood will wash his sins. The two friends hold hands as a gasping Alexander proclaims, I have a tender reliance on the mercy of the Almighty through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the people of New York won't stand for this. The pressure is on the Episcopal Bishop to change his mind. By 1 p.m., he caves enough to visit Alexander again. Eloquent to the bitter end, Alex professes his faith to the ecclesiastical leader and agrees that dueling is a terrible thing. Should he live, Alex promises he will never do it again. He also assures the bishop that, quote, I have no ill will against Colonel Burr. I met him with a fixed resolution to do him no harm. Close quote. Huh. Huh just another indicator that Alex really may have purposely thrown away his shot. With all that said, Alex's magical way with words results in one last argument going his way. Bishop Moore relents and administers last rites. Alex lives to see another day, but it's fairly obvious he's not going to last long. In fact, Dr. Hosack's post-mortem examination will find that the shot hit his second or third false rib then punctured his liver and diaphragm before splintering and lodging in his first or second lumbar vertebrae. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. At this point, Doctor Hosack tells us the dying founder speaks mostly of one thing: quote, "My beloved wife and children." Close quote. Okay, it's time. Eliza brings their seven living children in to say goodbye. Angelica is the oldest at nineteen. The youngest is little two-year-old Philip, named for his deceased dueling older brother. Eliza holds little Philip up to Alexander so he can kiss his baby boy one last time. Alex now looks at all of his living posterity. I'm going to let Dr. Hosack recount this part. Quote, At the sight of his children brought to the bedside together, seven in number, his utterance forsook him. He opened his eyes gave them one look and closed them again until they were taken away. Close quote. Prayerful, tearful friends now pack tightly into the dark and dreary bedroom. The scene is too heavy for some to bear. The peg-legged, irreverent lover of life, preamble author and constitutional signer, Governor Morris, has to excuse himself at one point. He goes out for a walk. I wonder... In this dark moment, does he think back on happier times with his friend? (laughs) Like that time in 1784 when Governor let a bet with Alex goad him into being way too familiar with George Washington. Governor told some silly story over dinner. Then, per the bet, gave the legendary Virginian a slap on the back while exclaiming, Wasn't it so, my old boy? Oh, the ice-cold look on George's face! How many times Alex must have good-naturedly teased Governor about that night to think such reminiscing will never happen again. Back in the room, Alex continues to comfort his morning friends. He does get political at one point. Secessionists are still on his mind. If they break this union, they will break my heart, he says. Of course, Alex. Of course, I'd expect nothing less from the Revolutionary War-fighting Federalist paper-writing Constitution-signing Founding Father. A few Founding Fathers have preceded Alex to the grave. Benjamin Franklin, John Hancock, Patrick Henry, Alex's own father figure and friend, George Washington. Sam Adams just passed last year. But of the primary Founders, it's Alex, only in his late 40s, who dies the youngest. At 2 p.m., July 12th, 1804, a day and a half since shots were fired and after a final few simple quick breaths. The dramatic and at times turbulent life of General Alexander Hamilton ends. Two days later, on Saturday, July 14th, New York lays its favorite adopted son to rest. The morning begins with artillery blasts and the chimes of mournful bells. The funeral procession starts at noon with the New York militia leading and the Society of Cincinnati following. Behind them, eight pallbearers carrying the fallen founding father in a mahogany coffin with his sword and hat laying atop. Next, Alex's horse, then his four oldest sons, Alexander Jr., James, John, and finally, six-year-old William. Behind them, Alexander's dear friend, Governor Morris. Then many more dignitaries of all sorts. Meanwhile, New Yorkers silently pack the streets leading to Trinity Church with tears in their eyes. All bankers wear a black band, and they won't remove it for a month. Once at Trinity, Governor gives the eulogy. The wordsmith delivers a carefully crafted oration that does justice to Alex's many good works without falsely making him a saint but his failure to rail against Aaron Burr leaves many disappointed. As the Constitution signer speaks, Alex's four oldest boys are by him at the rostrum, bawling their eyes out. When he finishes his remarks, Alex is taken to the churchyard and interred with full military honors. We've now laid Alex to rest, but much remains, and will remain, unresolved. To point, did Alex really throw away his shot and who fired first? On July 17th, the duelists' seconds issue a vague joint statement on the duel. But only two days later, Alex's second, Judge Nathaniel Pendleton, feels compelled to issue an amendment specifying why he believes Alex did indeed throw away his shot and that the now deceased fired second. Tying both arguments together, Nathaniel points to some things you already know, like how Alex said he would throw away his shot before the duel and thought his pistol was still loaded afterward. But his most compelling argument of the two, I think, is that Alex purposely missed Aaron. On July 13th, 1804, the day after Alex died, Nathaniel goes back to the Weehawken dueling grounds in search of evidence. Incredibly, he and a friend find the needle in a haystack they're looking for. To quote Nathaniel's statement, the ball passed through the limb of a cedar tree at an elevation of about 12 feet and a half, perpendicularly from the ground, between 13 and 14 feet from the mark on which General Hamilton stood, and about 4 feet wide of the direct line between him and Colonel Burr. Damn, that is compelling. A few days after Nathaniel's statement, Aaron's second, William, feels he must respond. Now, I want to point out that despite their disagreements, these guys are super respectful of each other and go to lengths to say they think the other is genuine in his opinion. William even opens his statement by saying he means zero disrespect to Alex's memory, but that he recalls General Hamilton, one, putting on his glasses, and two, firing first, with Aaron firing a few seconds later. Personally, I think both seconds are partially right. Sure, Alex put on his glasses at the last minute, but I'll hardly fault a middle aged man staring into the sunlight for wanting his full faculties about him. And as Alex's most famous biographer, Ron Chernow, points out, Alex might have wanted to make sure he didn't accidentally hit Aaron. But the selling point for me is the tree limb. In fact, Years later, a 70-plus-year-old Aaron Burr will recount how he remembers hearing Alex's ball in the tree branches above him. So unless you think the soldier, General Hamilton, couldn't hit the broadside of a barn, it seems to me like Alex threw away his shot. As for who shot first, I think William's right. It was Alex. I'll again credit Ron Chernow, who draws attention to the fact that Alex needed to fire first if he wanted to prove to Aaron that he didn't mean to hit him. Solid point. And we'll never know for sure, but hey, that's my perspective. Now what happens with Aaron Burr after all of this? Turns out his remorse at Weehawken has a short shelf life. He happily breakfasts with his cousin right afterward. Soon he flees south. By August, Vice President Burr realizes he has no future in American politics and offers his service to British Ambassador Anthony Mary to effect a separation of the western part of the United States. Yeah, Alex's greatest fear, secession. After such treason and while under murder charges from New Jersey, get this. Aaron heads back to Washington, D.C. to play VP. It certainly is the first time, and God grant it may be the last, that ever a man so justly charged with such an infamous crime presided in the American Senate, says Senator William Plummer. Well, (laughs) thank goodness no shady characters will ever hold high office again. Am I right? Once out of office, Aaron floats for a number of years. He heads west, trying to arrange other secession plots to carve out a kingdom for himself, further proving Alexander was right to think he's a power-hungry tool without an ounce of real patriotism. He's arrested for treason in 1807, but acquitted. Aaron then bounces to Europe, where he continues dreaming of empire and having trysts with any and all willing women. A funny story, though. At one point, he calls on our favorite French minister, Talleyrand. Talleyrand. The French master of manipulation replies, I shall be glad to see Connaubert, but please tell him that a portrait of Alexander Hamilton always hangs in my study where all may see it. Aaron doesn't stop in. He returns to New York in 1812. Both the empire and garden states have now dropped all charges against Aaron and he goes back to practicing law. Eventually, he marries, cheats on, and spends the money of the much younger wealthy widow, Eliza Jumel. She quickly decides to divorce him. And who's her divorce lawyer? Alexander Hamilton. Junior. I'm sure you did your pops proud, son. Never showing any real regret for having killed one of the greatest constitutional minds and American patriots to ever walk the earth, the disgraced treasonous Aaron proved that Alex was right. In killing him, he killed his own reputation and career. Come 1836, the lonely bastard dies as a never-rebounding has-been. But despite whatever cosmic justice Aaron suffers, his damage to Alex will be long-lasting. Unlike many of the other founders, Alex never gets the chance to craft his own narrative. If anything, it's his political adversaries who get to define him. For example, Thomas Jefferson places a sculpted bust of Alex opposite a sculpted bust of himself in his entry hall at Monticello. Opposed in death as in life, Tom likes to say. But the busts don't really depict two equal and worthy adversaries. Tom's own bust is far larger and grandiose. I think the symbolism speaks for itself. As do the Barb's he, John Adams, and other once-political foes lob at the silenced Alexander in the decades to come. And so it falls to Alex's widow, Eliza, to fight for his legacy. Despite wanting so desperately to be reunited with Alex that she once asked Governor Morris to pray for her death, she lives 50 years after Alex's passing. Let me put that another way. That's longer than Alex's entire life. Between establishing an orphanage and the Hamilton Free School in New York City's Washington Heights, the devout widow works tirelessly to recuperate the reputation of Alex. Eliza uses her time to interview Alex's colleagues, Visit Mount Vernon and read letters he sent to George, in short, to be his historian, to preserve Alex's memory. Her efforts eventually bear fruit in the form of her son John writing a multi-volume work about his father. But I wouldn't say Eliza Johns or any of Alexander's descendants offset the work of his political enemies. Really, it's only in the 21st century, through the likes of Ron Chernow and Lin-Manuel Miranda, that the fierce, illegitimate, Caribbean-born founding father has been placed anew in the pantheon of America's demigods. My Hamilton. That's how Eliza refers to him long after he's gone, as she reads and rereads his letters to her, to the point that some of them, over the decades, crack and crumble. She wears the remains in a pouch, hanging on a string near her heart but one of the poignant letters that do survive is the letter Alex wrote on July 4th, only meant to be given to her if he died. We don't know when or where she read it for the first time, but I imagine tears flowed from her dark eyes then and with every reading after. Let me read it to you. This letter, my very dear Eliza, will not be delivered to you unless I shall first have terminated my earthly career. To begin, as I humbly hope, from redeeming grace and divine mercy, a happy immortality. If it had been possible for me to have avoided the interview, my love for you and my precious children would have been alone a decisive motive. But it was not possible without sacrifices which would have rendered me unworthy of your esteem. I need not tell you of the pangs I feel from the idea of quitting you and exposing you to the anguish which I know you would feel. Nor could I dwell on the topic, lest it should unman me. The consolations of religion, my beloved, can alone support you. And these you have a right to enjoy. Fly to the bosom of your God and be comforted. With my last idea, I shall cherish the sweet hope of meeting you in a better world. Adieu, best of wives and best of women. Embrace all my darling children for me ever yours, A.H. History That Doesn't Suck is created and hosted by me, Greg Jackson. Researching and writing, Greg Jackson and Ciel Salazar. Production and sound design, Josh Beatty of J.B. Audio Design. Musical score, composed and performed by Greg Jackson and Diana Averill. For a bibliography of all primary and secondary sources consulted in writing this episode, Visit historythatdoesntsuck.com. Join me in two weeks where I'd like to tell you a story. History That Doesn't Suck is created and hosted by me, Greg Jackson. Special guest, Professor Ben Sawyer. Production by Airship. Sound design by Molly Bach. Theme music composed by Greg Jackson. Arrangement and additional composition by Lindsey Graham of Airship htds is supported by fans at patreon.com forward slash history that doesn't suck my gratitude to your kind souls providing funding to help us keep going thank you and a special thanks to our patrons whose monthly gift puts them at producer status anthony pazulo art lang beth m Chris Jansen, dev hawkins bill thompson Bob Drazovich, Brad Herman, Brian Goodson, Carrie Bagoli, Charles and Shirley Clendenden, Chris Mendoza, Christopher McBride, Christopher Merchant, Christopher Pullman, Dane Polson, David Aubrey, David DeFazio, David Rifkin, Denke, Durante Spencer, Donald Moore, Ernie Lowe, Gareth Griffin, Henry Brunges, Jacob McDaniel, Jake Gilbreth, James Black, Jamie McCreary, Jeffrey Moots, Jennifer Magnolia, Jessica Poppik, Joe Dobis, Joel Kerr, John Frugal-Dougal, John Booby, John Keller, John Oliveros, John Wiglevich, John Schaefer, John Schaff, Jordan Corbett, Justin M. Spriggs, Karen Bartholomew, Kim R., Kyle Decker, Lawrence Neubauer, Linda Cunningham, Mark Ellis, Mark Price, Matthew Mitchell, Matthew Simmons, Melanie Jan, Meg Sikender, Noah Hoff, Paul Goinger, Reese Humphreys Wadsworth, Rick Brown, Sarah Traywick. S.B. Wave, Sean Peppard, Sharon Thieson, Sean Baines, The Creepy Girl, Tisha Black, and Zach Jackson. Join me in two weeks, where I'd like to tell you a story.